welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. Halloween Classics continues. Yes, we are in the month of October, week two. Yes. Uh, and it continues with another classic. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never heard of this. Oh, before. shut up. <laughs> yes, it's probably a film we should have discussed before now. <laughs> yeah. But this is what we save the Halloween Classics for. The absolute masterpieces of genre cinema. Um, and this is a masterpiece across all cinema, regardless of genre. This is one of the greatest films ever made, I think. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, yeah, it's definitely up there. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we are, of course, talking about William Friedkin's The Exorcist yes. from 1973. Um, oof, history with this film, it goes way back for me. How about you? Um, yeah, no, I was only joking when I said I'd never heard of the film. Yeah, um, one of the first Rites of Passage horror films, isn't it? It is, yeah. I remember watching it when I was younger, sleepover with some mates, uh, put the VHS on, and yeah, it was, it was, I mean, because of... Maybe bravado, but we were laughing at it because it was a group of teenagers watching it together. I think if I'd watched it by myself, it would have been different. And I think this is going to be interesting when we discuss the film. Yeah. In this episode, I think yeah, the way you discover it is definitely what sets it up for how you feel about it today. Yeah. For me, this had. I always knew of it as, as being this really restricted, terrifying film you could never watch. Like, um, you know, as, as I mentioned on the podcast before, one of the first proper horror films I watched in four was Friday the 13th, and I kicked off my love for films. And I mean, it's always been there, but my proper serious, like taking it seriously, doing research, seeking out more films and, and such. Um, but this was always the one where like, I'd watched 18s when I was younger, but this is the one my parents were like, no, you're not watching it. It's not happening. Um, but I remember my dad going to see the re-release, uh, at the cinema and my mother went into labor with my sister the next day. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, my, uh, my mum, she's not going to listen to this anyway, so I can spill the tea. B truly believes this film is cursed. Um, and that anyone who watches it is cursed. There's, there's a lot of cursed people out there. Um, but it was always the thing, like, my dad would own it on DVD and my mum would be so angry that he'd bring it into the house because it's it a fucking curse around The Exorcist. So, of course, there's a big hype around it, you know? It's like, fuck, you know, as a kid who didn't know better, I was like, Jesus Christ, what is this film? Um, but I always remember my dad had a mouse mat with Reagan's face on it. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> like, just looking at that mouse mat and... Um, I remember when it was first released on Sky Box Office and the advertisement was on Sky a lot. That would scare me. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's all that hype around it, but when I watched it for the first time, when I was quite a lot older, it scared the shit out of me. And it's still one of those films I find scary to this day. And I truly believe this to be the number one scariest film ever made. I really do. Oh, wow. I, I, I really do. And I think it's down to the makeup effects is down to linda blair's performance because obviously i'm not a religious guy you're not a religious guy um but like i said about on our amateur horror episode with haunted house films you don't have to believe in what this film is saying to find it scary 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely understand. So when you first watched the film, mm. were you by yourself? Uh, I was with my sister. With your sister, um, your youngest sister. Completely traumatised her. Uh, she, I was... Oh, she would have been like 15, I think, when oh, I put okay. it on for her. Um, and yeah, she she couldn't sleep after. Um, but yeah, no, so I was quite a bit older. So I'm seven years older than my sister. So I'd have been like 20, what, 22? Oh, wow. Like that. So that's quite it, late yeah. to watch. Yeah, I'd, I'd gone out. I'd, you know, fully independent, brought it myself on Blu-ray, owned a copy of this cursed film, put it on. Like, yeah, okay. The, the hype is real. But what shocked me was how much of a slow burner it is. Like, with all the hype, and not just from my parents, just, like, everyone who I knew had seen it. I've gone on about how disturbing it is and everything. So when it started the way it did, I was like, I put the right film in? Is this the right film? And as it went on, I was like, okay, this is genuinely terrifying. This is a great horror film, but this is not just a great horror film. This is a great film. Like, this is well-made. It's well-acted. It's... Surprisingly, for a film with dialogue like your mother sucks cocks in hell, surprisingly sophisticated. Um, it, yeah, it is just a masterclass in filmmaking. Yeah, and and that's something that I can appreciate. So the, the more I watch it, the more I realise how well made it mm. is. And I always thought it was a fantastic film, but I never found it scary. I never, and I never have found it scary. Um, and I'll explain that as we go through the the episode. But I think. Because of the way I first watched it, there was all the hype around mm. it, but I'd also seen all the parodies. Yeah. I was also aware of all the parodies because there were loads of them. So when these things happened, and, you know, we were a group of teenage guys, you know, we wouldn't ever um, admit to being scared by a film. We were all watching it together. So we, we found it hilariously funny. And that's kind of stayed with me and it's it's kind of stuck with me, but also kind of allowed me to appreciate the filmmaking on display as well. Mm. And the more I watch it, the more I realise just how well made it is. And comparing it to other horror films as well, how sort of groundbreaking it was in 1973. Yeah, it absolutely launched uh, a subgenre, for sure. Like. Yeah. We've had countless possession films since the release of The Exorcist, and none of them have been as good. No. Not a single one. They've come close. I mean, The Exorcist 3 itself is, is a fantastic film that comes close, but nothing has ever topped this. No. Because none of them can understand what makes this work so well. Yeah, without just rehashing it. Without just throwing without in a scary just, child. Yeah, without that's, that's just all they doing do. the same yeah. thing. It is also one of those um, subgenres that doesn't lead it, it doesn't lead itself to really being open to doing things differently. No, and no. that was terrible grammar on my part. I do apologise. It, it, it got lazy. <laughs> it got lazier as it went on. Um, see, I said lazier, so I'm, I'm combating your background. <laughs> but it's like um, the slasher film. So the fundamentals of the slasher film, you can do a lot with it. Yeah. But ultimately, it's kind of the same thing in yeah. different locations. Yeah. And then you can do, when you get into the meta stuff, that makes more sense. Yeah. But can you get meta with a possession film? Like, Probably. Has anyone done it? Well, 
supposedly Quentin Tarantino wanted uh, wants, shall I say, because um, you know, I mean, it's still a chance for him to make it. Uh, wanted his horror film when he makes a proper horror film, uh, more so than Death Proof, to be a possession film. Now, I feel like if anyone's going to make it meta and do it right, it's going to be Quentin Tarantino, because we all know how many films he watched and what he does with those films for his influences. Um, but, I mean, I'm talking about a well-known name there. A lot of the possession films these days are either fairly new filmmakers or filmmakers who make gen generally generic horror films. Now, I'm not including James Wan in this, because he did a great job with The Conjuring 1 and 2. They're not strictly possession films, but they deal with possession, um, you know, so he knows what he's doing. If he made a straight-up possession film, which I don't think he has, but if he made a straight-up possession film, I think it would be great. But a lot of the time what you're getting is these filmmakers who have just watched The Exorcist many years ago, but then watch what's came after, and then they're kind of building on one another, and then by the time you know it, a possession film just consists of a girl with creepy eyes, standing staring at someone for a while, and moving on. And it's, it's generic. Yeah. You get some CGI in there. It's, you know where it's going to go. You know where it's going to go. The last exorcism, that was good. Um, I don't, you haven't seen that one. Um, that one did it in a found footage style, but it, it pondered the question, <laughs> is she actually possessed or is this something else? Mm. So it kind of delves deeper into that side of things, which I find really interesting. Um, but this does it all. This ponders that question. This shows you a possession. This shows you dealing with a possession all whilst we have this story of a mother trying to fight for what's best for her daughter. And that, to me, now, outdoes everything else in this film. Because I find Ellen Burstyn's story in this film the most compelling thing. No matter how many times you watch it, her performance and her dedication to it is what makes this film phenomenal for me. It elevates it. It's one of my favourite performances of all time. Yeah. But yeah. we'll get to that anyway. Directed by William Friedkin. Um, directed by... Uh, Director of, shall I say, previous podcast film Cruising, yes. uh, Killer Joe, The French Connection, Bug, Rules of Engagement, The Guardian, To Live and Die in LA, Sorcerer, The Boys in the Band, etc., etc. Stanley Kubrick was attached to direct the film, but only if he could produce it himself. As the studio was worried that he would go over budget and over schedule, it eventually settled uh, on Mark Rydell, but William Peter Blatty uh, insisted on William Friedkin instead. After a standoff with the studio, which initially refused to budget over Rydell, Blatty uh, eventually got his way. Alfred Hitchcock turned down the chance to acquire the screen rights to the novel and also turned down the chance to direct the film when another producer brought the rights to the property. Now, what does uh, William Friedkin, Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock all have in common other than the fact that they've all had a Halloween classics episode? <laughs> um, I have no idea. They are three of the greatest filmmakers of all time, but they're massively problematic. Yeah. And I, I mean, okay. yeah, massively problematic. I thought it was going to be a fun fact. So um, I'm sorry. I thought, it was, I thought it was going to be they were all born on the... Uh, no, 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 no. They, um, yeah, they all had a daughter who was demonically possessed. Um, no, they, uh, yeah. Their methods of filmmaking are very questionable. And, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, this is going to be just a warning. This is going to be a trivia-heavy episode. So uh, if you don't like trivia, still give us five stars. Uh, but we'll get into why yeah, William Friedkin We've, we've discussed on the podcast previously, particularly in the, the, the Shining episode. Mm. But 
Yeah, they are three directors who didn't quite trust an actor to act. Yeah, even when dealing with people as talented as Tippi Hedren, Shelley Duvall and uh, Alan, Burstyn. Alan Burstyn. You know? Yeah, yeah. It seems particularly geared towards women as well, but we'll, it is. we'll yeah. get into that. Um, William Friedkin, though, a well-established director, The French Connection. Yeah. Um, just a couple of years previous. Something else that all three have in common. Best yeah. Picture. Absolutely. So he didn't come in. I'm, I'm, I think this was his first horror film. I mean, but then Mark Rydell, what did he do? Didn't I he, don't know. Didn't he direct, like, Grease? Maybe. Maybe. Am I being I'm, I'm honestly not familiar with his name. But again, you know, something else that all three directors have in common, The Shining, The Birds, and, well, and Psycho, and uh, and The Exorcist, all films released after well-established films by these directors in different genres. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, shows, like the Amateur Valara episode, again, you know, sometimes directors who don't direct horror are some of the best at making horror. Yeah. To Mark Rydell, a bit of a weird one, um... He directed On Golden Pond, mm. uh, The Rose, the Bette Midler film. Did he direct Grease? Fox, The River. He did not direct Grease. So yes. I don't know who Did I'm you getting. get that mixed up Him because of Rydal High School in Greece? Oh, of course. <laughs> dumb, dumb bitch that I am. Um, but yeah, not really. Probably cheaper. Let, let's be honest. Yeah. He was probably cheaper yeah. Yeah. than William Friedkin. Because yeah. William Friedkin had... The French Connection, which is a huge success. Um, so, yeah, he was probably cheaper rather than yeah. more um, capable of directing a horror film. Yeah. Written by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote The Exorcist Free. Uh, the Ninth and, directed. and directed. And directed. Did he direct it? He directed oh, okay, that film, yeah. The Ninth Configuration, Mastermind, Darling Lily, The Great Bank Robbery, Gun, a Shot in the Dark, etc., etc., he based his novel on a supposedly genuine exorcism from 1949, which was partially performed in both Cottage City, Maryland, and St. Louis, uh, Louis. St. Louis? St. Louis? Yeah. Missouri. Uh, several... Sorry, have you not watched Sex and the City, the movie? Well, several area newspapers reported on a speech a minister gave to an amateur, amateur parapsychology society in which he claimed to have exorcised a demon from a 13-year-old boy named Robbie, and that the ordeal lasted a little more than six weeks. So, it's probably um, a good time to ask uh, if you agree that exorcisms on children are absolutely child abuse. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it's insane. It, the, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, if, uh, if we have any religious listeners, you might want to fast forward a little bit. Um, but... Religion as a whole and and the church, um, some of the some of the shit that goes on, it's it's fucking ridiculous. And this film's a good highlight of that. I mean, because obviously, you know, we're seeing an exorcist. Is it? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Let me finish my sentence. We're seeing an exorcist as our hero here in this film, right? Mm -hmm. It's the protagonist of the film. Yeah, the film's named after him. He's coming to save the day with the good word of God. We know Linda Blair is, is possessed in this film, but also, it, you know, it's still showing this man coming into this girl's life and uh, doing horrific things. I mean, you know, with the holy water ripping holes in her skin and everything. 
this is showing it from a fantasy perspective, but this is also highlighting what people have done in real life. Yes. You know, coming in and tying a skill to a bed and fucking performing this ritual on her. Like I said, we know it's real in the film, but in real life, these people are obviously going through something and they are convinced that they're possessed by the devil. And it's just horrendous. It's fucking ridiculous. It is. It is. And as far as I know, they certainly don't do it anymore. No. Um, the, the, it might happen where people don't know, but it certainly doesn't happen now. No. I suppose fundamentally, the, the point of the film does come from wherever you're coming from. Yeah. And that was badly worded. But as an atheist, I don't believe in religion. No. So I watched the film and I think this is a scare, a well-made horror film. Yeah. About, you know, complete fantasy. Complete fantasy. Mm -hmm. If you are highly religious, like Blatty was, mm. this film shows religion conquering evil. Yeah. Religion being able to do what science wasn't able to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Father Karras, you know, Max von Sydow, I can't remember his name in it. Um, they are able to do what the doctors aren't able to do. Yeah. And therefore, this is a very positive interpretation of religion. Yeah. Particularly Catholicism. Yeah. So I, as not a Catholic, mm. don't really see that. No. Or that's part of the film that I don't really um, relate to. Yeah. So it, it's it a lot of it is dependent on the audience watching it. Yeah. Really, you know, some people but then even within the Catholic Church, some people celebrated the film and others thought it was the most disgusting thing they'd ever watched. Yeah. yeah. Um I think as well, especially with the story it's based on, uh, about the thirteen year old boy who was supposedly possessed and got an exorcism. I think that's also a sign of how much the world has been lacking in mental health resources in so long because let's face it he, he was probably having mental health struggles yeah no absolutely. That's, that's probably what was going absolutely. on there and no one would have considered that instead they're like oh let's do a fucking exorcism that's, that's yeah. crazy yeah so the real story behind it and in the context of real life where i know i you know, believe well i don't know for a fact but i fully believe that you know possession does not exist yeah. i fully believe that so the idea is that the real life story is probably to me more shocking than the film yeah because of how horrendous that would be and that is child abuse mm. in the context of the film because it doesn't it doesn't leave the question it's that was this girl possessed i mean her head's spinning yeah. she's floating <laughs> You know, the supernatural is yeah. right there in front yeah. of you. So there's no there's no question about it. Mm. So it looks at it differently. So I, I wouldn't look at the treatment of Regan in that way in the context of the film mm. because we know she's possessed. Yeah. Complete fiction, yeah. but we know she's possessed. Mm -hmm. Because she wouldn't be able to survive her head spinning like that, floating, you know, all that shit that's going on, you know. It's out of context in I, real life. I did read something. It's, it's quite um, a positive 
end to this tangent um, that the boy who was possessed that inspired the story actually went on to be quite successful and live quite a happy life. Um, so it didn't traumatise him too much, thankfully. Um, it's also mentioned in the film at one point, the idea that an exorcism, um, the, the doctor didn't believe exorcism was a real thing, mm. but in some patients they find it quite comforting. Yeah. And they, it's almost like a placebo yeah. effect where they think that an exorcism has been performed on them. They think the exorcism has worked and it kind of cures whatever sort of mental health issue they were having. It's like not, hypnotism. Not completely, yeah. obviously. It's like hypnotism, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, you, you're convincing these people that... And it's kind of like the people that go to psychics when they've lost a loved one. You know, people go to these things for a comforting way forward that'll help them get out of things. But in reality, I mean, the people on the other end are just kind of exploiting people. To a certain degree, I suppose... I suppose, yeah. Budget, $11 million. Uh, worldwide gross, $441.3 million. Lane, And is that at the time? Because that's the re-release and shit. Yeah, I don't know if that's as a whole, but in my trivia, now, this isn't dated, so I'm not sure if it's still the case, mm -hmm. but it's what's the highest gross in Warner Brothers film of all time and the highest gross in R-rated film of all time when adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that means butts and seats, Yeah, it, essentially. To go through some of the history, because I couldn't find anywhere within the film to place this trivia, uh, The Exorcist is the first horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Get Out, Jaws, The Silence of the Lambs, and The Sixth Sense are all nominated after this, and of course The Silence of the Lambs won. Um, fully, all of the awards that this was nominated for fully deserved. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you got any of the others? No. Oh, <laughs> do you? Yeah. Well, I know. I know the acting one because that's that's my thing. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Ellen Burstyn was yeah. nominated for lead actress. Linda Blair nominated for supporting actress. Yeah. Uh, Jason Miller nominated for supporting actor. Um, I did it win for screenplay. I'm sure it. I won. think it did. It won for adapted screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. It did. Yeah. And. The Academy needs to recognise horror films more often um, because this, I mean, this absolutely deserves and it's how you know it's a milestone in horror when even the Academy notices it. Um, but this is, and I'm not a huge fan of the term, um, but I'm going to use it anyway, elevated yeah. horror. It's it's elevated horror. Ellen Burstyn was a damn fine actress. You know, they had fucking Max von Sydow in it. You know, they, they gave it $11 million. Mm -hmm. You know, it's elevated horror. It, they put a lot... They didn't put the biggest amount, you know, because we're probably films around the time getting $20 million. But $11 million in 1973 yeah. was a big risk for a mm -hmm. R-rated horror film. Um, so, yeah, it, it paved the way for horror at the Oscars, which... Hasn't been massive. No, it, it needs to improve again because, I mean, I know we had Get Out, um, but since then, you know, we've had the likes of Tony Collette in Hereditary, obviously, um, Florence Pugh in Midsummer, Lupita Nyong'o in Us. Uh, people are actually, I mean, we can't say it because, you know, I haven't got a UK release date. People are saying Mia Goth in Pearl. Um, you know, we've had all these great performances. Even if you're not going to nominate the films, we've had these fantastic performances in horror. 
as elevated horror has become more popular, um, but still snubbed by the Oscars. But that's recently. Mm. So would you say that between The Exorcist and, let's say, Get Out, mm. would you say that there was a particular horror film, and I'm not including Silence of the Lambs, um, do you think there's a particular horror film that should have been nominated at the Oscars? The Babadook. You think? Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's just for uh, lead actress. The fact that that But that's still recent. So you're thinking... Well, it's between Get Out and the 80s, The 80s and the 90s, the 2000s. Can you think of horror films that were made with that sort of elevation that could be Oscar worthy? All I could think of is performances. Yeah, particularly. No, of Because of the I way... Mean, I, always, I always have a tendency to focus on performances mm. as well. Because of the way that horror is looked upon by the academy it's difficult to say a few films it's only like i said in recent years where i'll say films like okay you definitely should have been nominated um but performances wise there's so many that it's missed out on it's it's a difficult one and and i can't think of any answer from the off the top of my head um because i can say that that a horror film is expertly made fantastic you know something like Candyman, which is mm. really really yeah. well made fantastic you know, performed amazingly, just a really great film. Is it Oscar worthy? Like what what does Oscar mean to us? Mm. I suppose what needs to change is the idea of what is Oscar yeah. worthy. Because as much as horror is sort of underrepresented uh, underrepresented thank you. Um comedy also. You oh, know yeah. it's yeah. it's yeah. difficult to to do comedy so it, it tends to gear towards big dramatic films and big dramatic performances yeah. and that's another tangent i do apologize <laughs> um podcast regulars Ooh. siskel and ebert gave the exorcist four stars which is amazing considering uh siskel is obviously prudish about horror films and gave thumbs down to poltergeist aliens and silence of the lambs Siskel frequently complained about the terrorising of children in films and complained about similar themes in Poltergeist, uh, but said The Exorcist had such stunning professionalism at every level and the ending was so moving with the priests heroically sacrificing themselves for the child. And uh -huh. He loved it because of that. So that's, there we go. That that's it all. the thing though, isn't it? Like, you know, Poltergeist wasn't overtly religious, mm -hmm. whereas The Exorcist is overtly religious. Yeah. And religion saves the day. Yeah. So, when originally released in the UK, a number of town councils imposed a complete ban on the showing of the film, which led to the bizarre spectacle of exorcist bus trips, where enterprising travel companies organised buses to take groups to the nearest town where the film was showing. Didn't you say your mum saw the exorcist at the cinema? Did she go on an exorcist bus trip? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, she's from Coventry. I don't think it'd be banned in Coventry. <laughs> Um, in 1981, the film was released on video by Warner Home Video as one of its first UK releases. At the time, there was no requirement that videos should be classified by the BBFC, so the video was simply released on the strength of its existing X certificate. Contrary to popular opinion, the video version was never included on the list of video nasties and was never pros prosecuted for obscenity testament perhaps to the popularity of the film and the high regard in which it was held. I mean... Because 
it was nominated for Oscars. He ain't going to put an Oscar-nominated film on video nasty list. Could you imagine? Uh, after the Video Recordings Act, VRA, was introduced in 1984, it became necessary for the film to obtain a certificate for video release from the BBFC. The video release was continually delayed on the recommendation of Chief Censor James Furman, who advised Warner Brothers against submitting the film for a UK video certificate. A possible 1988 release was also um, denied by Vermin, who cited recent cases of child abuse as the reason. It was finally released on video fully uncut in June 1999, five months after Furman retired as a UK censor. Oh, James Furman, <laughs> the most boring bastards on the fucking planet. <laughs> but why would this? I mean, we've obviously spoke about exorcisms and, and child abuse and the link there. But why would this film affect that in any way? People already know fucking exorcisms exist. You know, if they're going to get an exorcism on their child, they're going to go and do it. Yeah. Regardless of this film. Yeah, it's it's true. You know, when a film is as popular as this, even without the internet in the 70s and 80s, everyone knows what fucking happens. Everyone knows what the fucking film is. But James Furman, he was very famous for not trusting people to make decisions for themselves. Yeah. Very much so, particularly um, working class mm -hmm. people. He believed that they were very easily influenced yeah. by these films. And in anything shown in these films, they were absolutely going to go out and do. Yeah. Because they're not only working class, they're stupid. And he was a grade A twat. He was. Uh, upon its initial theatrical release, the film affected many audiences so strongly that in many theatres, paramedics were called to treat people who fainted and others who went into hysterics. One audience member fainted and broke his jaw on the seat in front of him and then sued Warner Brothers and the filmmakers claiming that the use of subliminal imagery in the film had caused him to pass out. The studio settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. Um, yeah... <laughs> This is one of those films that I would have loved to have seen it at the cinema in its first release. Yeah. Because I fully believe it. No, you this. wouldn't. Why? You'd have been like, shh, shut up, be quiet. <laughs> well, we saw it at the cinema twice. Um, and uh, the did. second... We did. Did we? Yeah, we did. At the Horror All Nights in Prince Charles Cinema. And uh, the second time, was it was a mystery film at The Mockingbird. Birmingham. Was it really? Yeah, and people. We had two walkouts, and people were looking absolutely fucking disgusted because we were laughing at them. Oh. <laughs> wow! But it, it still has that effect. To this I day. can't remember seeing it on really? the big screen. We watched literally so both, subliminal messages, both versions. Really? So we watched the director's cut and the theatrical cut. Wow! <laughs> Crazy. Maybe, maybe there it's are the, some subliminal. Maybe messages. there is something there. I fully believe it made people faint, and I. A lot of times I question, you know, whether it's publicity stunts or whatever, but no, no, I fully believe with this film. In 1973, this is before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, this is probably the most extreme film people had seen mainstream-wise at this point. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Yeah, for a mainstream audience who were used to, you know, maybe seeing some rom-coms and yeah. such. Um, also, this film, uh, not just... You know, not just from my mum's words, uh, from a lot of other people. This film is supposedly cursed. There are tales about ominous events surrounding the year-long shoot, including the deaths of nine people associated with the production, and stories about a mysterious fire that destroyed the set one weekend. Uh, actors Jack McGrowan, 
uh, Gowron, should I say, and Vasiliki Miliaros died before the film was released. Christian evangelist Billy Graham claimed an actual demon was living in the celluloid reels of this film. A lot of films are cursed. We've already discussed one of them, Poltergeist. Um, Amateur Horror, you know. Um, I believe there's stuff around that as well. On, I, that was, actually, I think that was openly admitted as fake. The Omen. Um, Rosemary's, not Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> Two minutes of baby's not got a ghost on set. Is it? There's an urban legend around it. Um, but the X is, is is a famous one um, for its supposed onset curse. Um, th- that amount of deaths is, is pretty fucking weird. It's 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 unfortunate that, that that obviously those people died and and that happened. But I'm sure there's other films that aren't horror supernatural horror films. Yeah. That have had a case of bad luck, mm-hmm. or you know, new mutants. <laughs> yeah, not in that, but I mean, had stuff surrounding yeah. them. But obviously, because it's a horror film, it people are going to oh, yeah. elevate that yeah. so much higher. Yeah, there's there's countless documentaries and YouTube videos about it. Go and check it out, and also check out um, the Fear of God, Twenty Five Years of the Exorcist, uh, the Mark Kermode documentary. It's really fucking good even though it's obviously covers a limited space of time uh of the film being released it's 25 years later a lot of times passed since then uh it's still absolutely worth watching it's a very good documentary yeah yeah it is actually should we talk about the cast yes in uh the section we like to call hey i know you hoping for a demonically possessed voice that was hey i know your canton cast <laughs> Ellen Burstyn plays Chris McNeil uh, She was in Requiem for a Dream Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore Pieces of a Woman Interstellar Red Dragon The Last Picture Show The Fountain Oh Extensive career Still acting to this day Still slaying Yeah A fantastic actress Love her And she wasn't really considered For the role To begin with Was she? Well we have a Less, lot of uh... trivia For Ellen Burstyn Um, During a 1984 reunion Of the cast Of The Exorcist On Good Morning America Ellen Burstyn Told a story uh, Of when she was In Arizona Filming Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore And The Exorcist Was opening While she was there So she went to see it And uh, the scene where uh, Reagan Has her Arteogram Where she gets In a needle inserted into her neck oh, and pulled yeah. out genuinely one of the films one of the scenes i find the most disturbing absolutely in the film, uh, was the part where most people fainted after that scene she saw a woman wobbling up the aisle so she followed her and the woman fainted uh she was at her aid loosening her collar and uh, talking to her then the woman became uh, started to come around and ellen burston realized that if the woman opened her eyes and saw her it might cause her to panic yeah so her exact words were that she might think she was in the Twilight Zone or something. So she asked assistance from another person to help her. Go on, Ellen Burstyn, helping people in the audience. Yes. What a great person. I love Ellen Burstyn. She she won the Oscar for Best Actress for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Yeah. Um, but this, this, this is a fairly early role for her. Like, big role. I think this is her first big, major role. Who won that year at the Oscars instead of Ellen Burstyn? Oh, 1974. I'm not sure, to be honest. Isn't that terrible? 
Oh, I'll be better at that. I, I honestly thought you were an expert at all things Best Actress winners, so... Uh... Okay, well, I have to think. <laughs> I have to think. Excuse me. If Ellen Burson had won, where would she have gone on your ranked list of Best Actress winners? Um, Fairly high. Fairly high. She was she was fantastic in this. Yeah. She really was. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's definitely... This is probably within my top five favourite performances of all time. She just put so much into it. It's just believable. It really is. In a film where we're looking at a lot of the unbelievable, she really, really makes it believable. The uh, winner in 1974, um, Touch of Class, uh, Glenda Jackson. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Okay, okay. But I, I do stand Glenda Jackson. Okay. So I haven't seen A Touch of Class yet. She was also nominated with Marsha Mason for Cinderella Liberty, Barbara Streisand for The Way We Were. Oh. And uh, Joanne Woodward for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. Barbara Streisand, one of the names thrown about when it came to casting this role. Wow. Also, Audrey Hepburn was uh, William Freakin's first choice to play the role. Uh, After her fantastic performance in what I consider a horror film, almost. um, Film that you're going to tell me the name of. Am when, I? When she's blind. Oh, um, Wait Until Dark. Wait yeah, Until Dark. She was fantastic, she was in, fantastic that. Yeah. in that. Uh, Warner Brothers supported him because of her good critical and commercial reception with the studio, but she only agreed to do it, Queen Behaviour, if it was filmed in Rome, because that's where she was living at the time. She couldn't be asked to go anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh my God, imagine if they filmed this in Rome. Fucking hell, the film was cursed already. (laughs) It kind of would have, it would have worked, I suppose. But also... That would have stirred some parts. Yeah, it would have really... Yeah, it would have been an issue. But also it's kind of like... The idea is that it could happen to anyone. Mm. To a certain degree. So yeah, it would have added more to the stereotype. But as long as Audrey Hepburn's comfortable, you know, that's what matters. Yeah. (laughs) Anne Bancroft was another choice, uh, but she was in the first month of pregnancy and was dropped. Shirley MacLaine turned down the role of Chris McNeil also in order to make the similar... Uh, though much mm-hmm. less successful, the possession of Joel Delaney. Yeah, I really want to watch that. Mm, that is interesting because that was 1972. So that was before The Exorcist. That was a year before. You know, yeah, I don't at think the, same the Exorcist time. is the very no, first possession film. That's that's interesting how close they are together. What um, I feel like Chris McNeil maybe in the original novel was based a little on Shirley MacLaine. I'm literally about to say that exact thing. It's not just based on Shirley MacLaine, but Shirley MacLaine and her daughter. Because um, oh. they were friends with uh, Blatty. Oh. Um, Blatty. Blatty. McLean is well aware of this and has talked about it in interviews. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Jane Fonda um, was offered the role and an urban legend. I love that this is an urban legend. This is my type of urban legend. Has uh, that she angrily called back Friedkin and called the script a capitalist piece of shit. Yeah. Fonda denies this, countering that she denied the producers politely. I hope she's lying. I hope it's true. I hope she's lying. Do you know Jane Fonda? I fucking love Jane Fonda. She, I, she's just got something about. She's got spirit, hasn't she? Yeah. She's, uh, she's not to sound condescending, but she's a spitfire, and I like, I like that in me women. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, Jane Fonda or Jane Foster. Who the fuck is Jane Foster? Uh, Mighty Four, but never mind. Oh, okay. <laughs> Natalie Portman. 
<laughs> oh, I see. A fictional character. Yeah. Uh, Max von Sydow. Or Sydow. Because some people... People refer to his name differently. So I'm going to go with Sydow. Um, but I've literally heard people say two different versions of his name. Um... Oh, Sidu. That was the other one that they were saying on the documentary. Sidu. Max von Sidu. Max von Sidu. Um, this cast is just mind-blowing. It's so impressive. Like, Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, and Linda Blair in the three lead roles. That's such a good cast. Well, Jason Miller is Jason the Miller as well. Role. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, having him in this film... We hadn't done fuck all before And even, <laughs> even though, you know, Max von Sydow um, is, you know, by all accounts, a straight man... Showing up at the last 15 minutes, having the film named About You, that's queen behaviour. <laughs> he plays Father Lancaster Merrin. Uh, he was in Flash Gordon, The Seventh Seal, The Virgin Spring, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Minority Report, Dune, Shutter Island, Wild Strawberries, The Magician. His list does go on. Um, very prolific and a fantastic actor. Really one of the greatest. Yeah, and... Much younger than seen in the film. Yeah, they did special and makeup. I, I had no... I, I literally... Because he died quite recently. And I, I'd sort of been aware of his career. And I was like, well, that man must be 150 years yeah. old by now. Ridiculous. And then it didn't really, you know, gather to me. Mm. Um, come to me until we watched the documentary. I was like... Oh, of course he was playing much older than yeah. he was. Very impressive. His special effects, very good. Never would have known. No, no. Uh, the studio wanted Marlon Brando for this role. Uh, wow. Okay. William Friedkin yeah. was like, fuck no. Because if Brando was in it, it would become a Brando film instead of the important film he wanted to make. And that's so true. true. He would have made it all about himself. Yeah. And Max von Sydow, very um, serious actor. Yeah. You know, uh, in, he'd done quite a few Ingmar Bergman films by this point, so I, I feel like this is maybe his first big role in America. Yeah. Interesting in a way that he's also definitely not Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. I did read his religion. He's an actor, I... isn't he? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, but, the, you know... <laughs> it's called acting, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know, but William Friedkin was convinced to have him for this role, and he, he just sells it. He sells every second of it. He does, he does. Linda Blair... Uh, previous starter podcast plays Reagan McNeil. She was in Savage Streets, Howl Night, Roller Boogie, Chained Heat, Summer of Fear, Grotesque, Super Suckers, Calendar Girl, Fatal Blonde, and lots more, including the abomination that is The Exorcist 2 and The Heretic. <laughs> Definitely a future podcast film. You said you would never watch that film again. Unless for the podcast, it was in my terms and conditions. Oh, I see. This was some role for a girl of her age. Yes. Um, she received death threats from religious people uh, who believed the film glorified Satan. The other end of the people we were discussing. Yeah. One Brothers had bodyguards protecting her for six months after the film's release. Um, she, really, she received her Best Supporting Actress nomination before it was widely known that previous support, Supporting Actress winner Mercedes McCambridge had actually provided the voice of the demon. Um... By Academy rules, once Blair was given the nomination, it could not be withdrawn. But a controversy about uh, the controversy about Blair giving the credit for it uh, for another actress's work ruined her chances of winning the award. Supposedly, producers uh, sought to originally have Jamie Lee Curtis audition for the role of Reagan McNeil, but Janet Lee said, "You are not having my daughter in this fucking role. Are you kidding me?" Um, <laughs> she's not been a 
little low. Oh no, I suppose she no, won't. She was a teenager. Yeah. I know it's hard to she believe. Was. She was a teenager. I Halloween. always feel like Jamie Lee Curtis was much older than she She's was. Fucking Benjamin Button. She's <laughs> just aged in reverse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, she she would have looked like she was forty. Um, but yeah, um, Mercedes McCambridge. That's an interesting situation, isn't it? It is later on in my trivia, but it's uh, something. Yeah, it's it's strange that they thought that Linda Blair did that voice. Yeah. Um, and that the... Um, like... It was, it was weird that they nominated her based solely on the voice. But I do understand. There's also an older actress that took her place during mm. the scenes that a child really shouldn't have been part of. Yeah. As well. So it does beg the question, how much of that performance is Linda Blair? Mm. Because obviously you've got the build-up to, yeah. you know... And she does a fine job, but it's not the exciting part. The exciting part is when she's possessed. Mm. So how much of that really was Linda Blair? I mean, we've seen her in a documentary go through all the makeup stuff and being on yeah. set during the possession scene. So, you know, she does play a big chunk of the role. Um yeah, I mean, skipping ahead a bit to that trivia, she did file a lawsuit, um, Mercedes McCambridge, for it, um, for not receiving the credit on the film. Um, and she was massively disappointed by it because she was friends with William Friedkin, and he just completely fucked her over. Yeah, is it? that's really shitty. It actually. also led on to something else. Eileen Dietz, do you know the name? No. She wishes you knew the name. She also claimed that she played the role of the demon during the exorcism scene. Oh. William Friedkin denies this and has cited that Dietz's uh, actual screen time... And now, obviously, he spoke out about the McCambridge thing since, and I believe he's admitted it. Yeah. Um, but he said, no, who the fuck is this? De Dietz's actual screen time is less than one minute, as she served as little more than a body double for Linda Blair. Nevertheless, uh, much like a recent film we watched at Fright Fest and Once in Future Smash, Dietz, as of 2014, continues to promote herself as Captain Howdy, the demon from the film, in interviews and silent autographs at horror oh, conventions no. around the world. <laughs> oh, that's sad. No, that's sad, that is. Oh, my God. Literally, she's been at a bunch of horror cons near us. Really? Yeah. As Pazuzu or, uh, or Captain Howdy. Oh, God. Claiming that she is the demon in The Exorcist. Wowzers. Um, yeah. Mercedes McCambridge, I mean, that voice, though, is a yeah. huge part of the success of the film and the reason why those scenes are so creepy. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, William Friedkin just... is completely out of order for not. Yeah, I um... mean, we watched her in, um, excuse me, Johnny Guitar, mm. which we loved. Um, Linda Blair, it, it's a difficult one because... How much of the performance was that voice? Yeah. Like, really? But, you know, the the childish innocence before she's possessed, I believe, provides a big impact on when she is possessed. You really get to know this girl mm. before that point. And the scenes where she's having all the medical examinations and everything, she fucking sells the shit out of those scenes. That's true. She that is, is phenomenal also very true. In those um, scenes. She didn't win Best Supporting Actress. No. Uh, it was won by Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon. Okay. Youngest to ever win. Um, oh, wow. So two kids. Two, yeah, yeah two yeah. two uh, kids up for the award. Uh, also nominated Candy Clark for American Graffiti. Mm -hmm. 
Madeline Kahn for Paper Moon, Sylvia Sidney for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. Okay. Um, I haven't seen any of those other films, no. I must say. But um, the idea is that Tatum O'Neill, despite being amazing in the role, mm. it was a lead actress performance. Yeah. So yeah. Um, maybe probably shouldn't have been nominated for supporting actress. But I don't, I don't think you know after all the controversy, Linda Blair would have won. No. Um, she's just fantastic in this. She's also a B movie. She is queen. She's an icon. Um, not always shows the best roles, but she is an icon. She maybe would you say is the B movie queen? No, that's Sybil Downing. You think Sybil is absolutely Sybil not Linnea Quigley? It's close, but it's, it's Sybil Downing. Um, to have the audacity to take as many random roles as she has done, <laughs> and still be talking about it to this day, Maybe like she's roles ten... are random. Yeah, but Miami Sybil Downing. Sybil Downing on Twitter talks about these roles like they're all Oscar-winning classics to this day, she and for, to me, you can't top that sort of behaviour. Uh, Linda Blair comes close, though, and so does Linnea Quigley. Yeah. Uh, Lee J. Cobb plays Lieutenant uh, William Kinderman. He was in 12 Angry Men, On the Waterfront, Exodus, Last, Last Moments, That Lucky Touch, The Great Kidnapping, Nick the Sting, etc, etc. Got no interesting trivia about him, but you know what? He, he does a great job of what he's got. If somebody turned around to you and said, draw a picture of a uh, detective... In yeah, a 1973 yeah. film, you would draw that picture. <laughs> it's true. It's fine. Jason Miller, father of Lost Boys star Jason Patrick, uh, plays father Damien Karras. Uh, he was in The Exodus 3, Rudy, That Championship Season, Mummy, Toy Soldiers, Vampire, The Knife Configuration, Marilyn, The Untold Story, and much more. But this was his first role. Wasn't he like a... Um... Play writer. He was a writer of some. Maybe. Yeah, I think he was, and I don't. I don't know how he got the role. I'm assuming he just he went for it and got it. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson was up for the role uh, of Father Karras, but Jason Miller landed the role because William Friedkin thought that Jack Nicholson was too unholy to ever play a priest. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, Jack Nicholson. Is better playing a possessed person <laughs> than true. Uh, a priest. And now, almost an hour into our episode, it's My time for Lord. our feature presentation. And just to let you know, today we will be discussing the director's cut, aka the version you've never seen, <gasps> which is no longer true. Lots of people have seen it. Which, for some people, is the only version they've seen. <laughs> yes, uh, it's our feature presentation. Nobody expected it, nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. Rated R. The movie you've been waiting for. Without the wait. In northern Iraq, Catholic priest Lancaster Merriam participates in an archaeological dig which unearths a medallion of St. Joseph and an artefact representing Pazuzu, an ancient demon. As Merrin prepares to leave Iraq, he encounters a large statue of Pazuzu with a giant erection and observes two dogs fighting in the desert. Um, just so, to clarify, Pazuzu has the giant erection and... Yeah, uh, not Father Merrin. Not Father Merrin. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, we are seeing him uh, mostly as face only. Um, 
it's such a weird opening for this film. And like I said earlier, you know, it is one that really took me by surprise when I first watched it. I did not expect it to start like this at all. I didn't. I was confused. First time watching it, I was like, what is this? Mm. Now I realise, and I, I don't know for a fact, but it's what I, it's what I think. It's my opinion. Um, do you think the, I, the fact that Pazuzu is the demon that possesses Reagan? Yeah? Uh, yeah, I thought it was common knowledge. Do you think that the fact that we see Pazuzu mm. in northern Iraq, mm. do you think it's a little xenophobic? Potentially. Do you, do you think it's easier for Blatty to blame, you know, it is, a sort of foreign entity? Yeah. It is dodgy that a lot of uh, possession films come from a foreign place. Um it's always some ancient statue or demon from another country yeah. that could never be America. No. You, you can never... Evil like this could not be unearthed from America. Because this this is the only scene shot in northern Iraq. Yeah. It's probably a costly scene. Yeah. Travel and yeah. all that stuff. It doesn't necessarily fit within the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. It does, it's not necessary to the rest of the film exactly mm -hmm. even though it's, it's very well shot very well made and that image yeah at the end is very you know very good yeah but i just i felt a little bit like oh okay so we're we're gonna blame something foreign for all this so this little white american girl yeah. getting possessed is something that's mm -hmm. from something that's happened in northern iraq okay which reminds me, i don't know why it reminds me it's completely random um but Going back to my recommendation to watch The Fear of God, if you ever wanted to see two grown men arguing, looking like they're about to get into a fist fight over a one line of dialogue at the end of a film, please watch that documentary yeah. for this entertaining argument between uh, William Peter Platy and uh, William Friedkin. It's the Battle of the Two Williams. It's, it's hilarious. Um, yeah, moving on. Just type in uh, Battle of the Two Willies in uh, <laughs> Google and see what pops up. Uh, in Georgetown... Actress Chris McNeil is working on a film directed by her friend, Burke Dennins. Chris lives for the production in a well-appointed house with housekeepers and her daughter, Reagan. We're introduced to Chris as she witnesses weird noises at nighttime in the house and find Reagan's window wide open. The next day, she goes to work on her film and absolutely slays with a capital S her performance as a queen leading a school protest. Uh, and this is when we get the iconic... Tubular Bowels by Mike Oldfield as she walks home. Yes. And yeah. immediately from this scene, we know Ellen Burstyn's come to slay. She's not messing around. She she has come to own this fucking film. She, she has. She really has. I found it interesting, the kind of film that was being filmed um, about student protests. Yeah. I'm assuming pro-student protests, mm -hmm. quite a leftist film. Mm. And she is kind of the lefty actress, um, Shirley MacLaine, or probably Jane Fonda mm -hmm. as well, that idea. Um, yeah, I found it interesting that some people have kind of latched onto this, and I think there's some truth into it as well, and the idea that... She is being punished 
for her kind of leftist views and this this leftist film yeah. is kind of being punished. We know Blatty is very religious. Um and he you know he he has no issues with telling you that Chris McNeil at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. isn't really seen to be religious. No. Um so maybe, you know, she's a single mother. Maybe the, this is some form of punishment. Mm, I mean, yeah. I mean, for her to start, there's a scene later on where she finds a crucifix in Reagan's room and she's fuming. Yeah. And, and I, really, I really think scenes like that as well, you know, really show that she's yeah. not religious. But by the end of the film, oh, she's a of believer. Course, of course. Um, going to the soundtrack, you may recall Lalo Schifrin. From the, the Amphil Horror episode. Mm-hmm. There's a rumour that that score was the score for The Exorcist. Um, how true that is, I don't know. But either way, he put forward a score for this film and it was rejected. William Friedkin later said that if he'd heard some music of Tangerine Dream, who uh, did the score for Sorcerer, he would have had them score this film um, from the Sorcerer soundtrack liner notes, that is. Friedkin actually hated the music so much that he yelled for the orchestra to stop playing, removed the reels that had been recording the music from the sound desk, threw them out into the streets, all in front of Lalo and his wife. He is such a piece of shit. He also hired Bernard Herrmann. Right. Who didn't want to compose the music score for the film because he felt that Friedkin interfered with him far too much. In Susan King's 2011 uh, with... Dorothy Herman uh, interview, who is Bernard Herman's daughter, she revealed that William Friedkin had told her father that he wanted to see the music every single day. Dorothy was looking forward to having uh, a dinner at Hotel Carlisle at that time when she arrived at the hotel suite and Herman said not to touch anything. Herman packed everything in his suitcase, told Friedkin to go fuck himself and then walked out with his brother in Washington Heights. So William Friedkin is just fucking pissing everyone off. Yeah. Um, it's a miracle that his film's as good as it is with his fucking attitude. It, it's a difficult one um, because obviously the idea of the dickhead director, you know, William Friedkin wasn't the first dickhead director, no. and he surely wasn't the last no. dickhead director. It's 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 a weird one because. Why be so intense? Like, yeah. what, what was the film where um, the, the director got so angry at one point his nose started bleeding? <laughs> what film was that? What oh, was shit. it? It was a podcast <laughs> was film a podcast as well, film. wasn't it? He got so <laughs> angry that his nose just started bleeding. Was it? Um, it's where they thought an actor had punched him. Yeah. Oh, what was it? It wasn't Verhoeven, was it? Oh, and yes, it, it was. was it, it was Paul Verhoeven with um, Michael Douglas in Basic Instinct. Oh, it was. Yeah. 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 So Paul Verhoeven, fantastic <laughs> director, but got so intensely <laughs> angry that his nose started bleeding. Like, bitch, <laughs> really, it's not that serious. You're just making a film here. Why be <laughs> such an asshole? And it's so frustrating because some of the... And, and I don't think they're related. This I don't think there's a correlation between the two. No. But there's some fantastic five-star masterpiece films that have been directed by fucking shits. Absolute yeah. shits who have been shits on film. 
you know, they don't trust actors to be able to perform, even though that's what they're paid mm-hmm. for. They can't, you know, what were we watching last night? But uh, Barbarian Sound, Studio. Sound yeah. Studio. And the director's a dick in that as well. Yeah. And just like being so rude to people. It's like, fucking hell. Yeah. It's really not that serious. Can't you, you know, all come together and not be twats? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of five star masterpiece films, probably directed by women. Um, that have had a lovely stage, you know, time, stage time, um, filming time and all that stuff, you know, you don't hear anyone talking about Amy Heckerling, like, and she's done loads of fantastic films. Yeah. Georgetown Georgetown based priest Damien Karras visits his mother in New York. Reagan tells her mother about imaginary friend named Captain Howdy. And shows her how she's been talking to him for a Ouija board. Uh, and he's a bit of a dick because he refuses to answer as to whether or not Chris McNeil is pretty. Yeah. Fucking rude. He should know. He definitely should know. But anyone who's anyone, particularly in the 70s, should know that the Ouija board is a bad idea. Karis <laughs> confides to a colleague that he feels unfit in his role as counsellor to other priests, citing a crisis of faith. Which is an ongoing theme here. Which, again, leads to some dodgy uh, religion um, supporting, what's the word? Religious praise, how by the end of the film he finds his faith. He finds his faith. Yeah, I suppose it today. depends, again, it's where are you coming from <laughs> looking at this. If you're a religious person, then obviously it's a good thing. And we, you know, we're not necessarily against religion you know uh, i mean we're against the ones that are against us no but, I'm, but, the, but the thing is it, it's i don't want to get too much into my opinions of religion we, we already did that about be, an hour ago we'd be here forever <laughs> well, no like really get into it but i i think as long as you're not harming anybody else you can do whatever the fuck you like yeah yeah you know so i'm kind of look at it like that so i'm not completely against that side of it, yeah. to be fair. As long as you're not in Mary... As long as people are interpreting it in the correct way. Yeah, as long as you're not in Mary M. Cosby's court. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> After sharing a lovely scene with Reagan, telling her how much she'll always love Reagan's father, Chris is fuming on the phone to the operator wanting to get through to Reagan's father because uh, he didn't call her on her birthday. And she is fucking... She's had it. She's she absolutely has. had it. She has. Um... Yeah, the broken family. Yeah. You know, yeah. the idea, the, the, you know, single mother who's working all the time. The father is so absent to the point we don't even see him once. No, no. Yeah. So, you know, is this Blatty, um, is this his commentary mm. on families in yeah. the 70s, broken yeah. families, single parents who aren't able to look after their you know yeah. Chris McNeil she's a famous actress so she can afford someone to look after Reagan but if she wasn't you know yeah I mean her dad doesn't even come to see her when she's going through the possession stuff no not you at know? all it's not at all yeah yeah very very interesting commentary there yeah um, Reagan gets into her mum's bed because her bed was shaking and she couldn't sleep Chris hears more weird noises so goes to investigate in the attic where we get a fantastic jump scare where the candle she takes up into the attic blows itself out, uh, nearly setting her on fire in the process. Uh, the fire literally just misses her face. And Carl, one of the housekeepers, 
gives her a jump scare to inform her that there's no rats as she initially expected. True, there are no rats. And it's this sort of slow building terror where it's like, oh shit, these, what the fuck is going on in this house? But they don't know they're in a horror film. Yeah. That's what it, why it works so well. Um, because, you know, obviously Chris is like, okay, something weird is going on here, but she immediately puts it down to rats. You know, yes. she's not immediately walking around like she's in a fucking horror film. Yeah. And it builds um, itself up. And when Regan says about her bed shake, she's like, oh, you know. Yeah. She looked, you dumb bitch. She's yeah. Screaming. <laughs> um, which is, is always great. Yeah, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that's what we're a fan of. Not people who know they're in a horror film. I hate it. <laughs> in the local church, a statue of Mary... Um, Gary! Is found ...desecrated with a big silver cock and orange painted tits. <laughs> <laughs> no, are they orange painted... Are they um, traffic cones? No, they're orange painted. Oh, I thought they were traffic I wish cones. Traffic oh, did I miss what? I didn't see that. Um, <laughs> again, very different scene for those who are religious and those who are not religious. But they were pointy breasts, weren't they? They were pointy. So do you think the Jean- statue were pointy. Anyway. Do you think Jean-Paul Gaultier was like, Madonna? Yeah. Madonna. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pointy bra. Reagan is taken for medical tests where she acts weird. Um, we get the first flash of the demon face during this scene. Of course, inspired heavily by the mask from last week's podcast film, Only Barber. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's official. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, William Friedkin I wasn't said. denying that. William Friedkin thinks Only Barber is one of the greatest films ever made. The, um... He'd be right. The doctor prescribes Reagan Ritalin. Yeah. Which is a medication mainly given in treatment of ADHD. Yeah. Um, I think it was quite interesting that the first thing was to throw pills at it. Yes. Yeah. He, he thinks it's the disorder of the nerves. Yeah. Um, and he also tells Chris that Reagan told him to keep his fingers away from her goddamn cunt whilst he was examining her. Yes. <laughs> now, Chris laughs this off to a certain degree. She does, doesn't yeah. She, she's, um, she's embarrassed, but they yeah. do kind of laugh it off like, oh my God, what's she... What's she like? What is she like? Bloody hell. Where's she learn that word from? (laughs) Certainly not me. Karis's mother has been admitted to a psychiatric hospital and he visits her. She blames him thinking that he was the one who put her there. And these scenes are really effective um, because of how well the actress performs the role playing Karis's mother. She's really good. Yeah. Um, there's just something really eerie. And, um, you know, by 2022 standards, it's not exactly the best representation for mental health. But the hospital where it goes, there's just something weird about it. Something is off there. Even though we know it's a psychiatric hospital, it's just something unnerving about the atmosphere during the scene, whether it's the lack of music, the way it's filmed, the performances. It's just really unsettling. Yeah. What I found really interesting... Um, and it's this scene and the scene afterwards. Uh, Father Karras is kind of reminded that she's stuck in, in a shithole. Yeah, yeah. She is. She's, she her is. living standards aren't yeah. great. He's kind of had to put her in a psychiatric hospital mm. because it's, um, I'm assuming, easier or cheaper. Mm. Because she isn't necessarily to the stage that the others are yeah. there in their mental health mm-hmm. struggles. Um but it's it was easier for him to put her there. Mm-hmm. Um, he essentially has to do this, yeah, because he's a priest, yeah, and because he chose to be a priest, and being a priest doesn't pay very well. Mm-hmm. He kind of has to take whatever he can get. 
he can't help her as much as he would like. Yeah. And her last days, you know, spoiler alert, and they are her last yeah. days, are, you know, stressful for her, living in a shithole, mm -hmm. not a great area, and mainly because he chose to be a priest. Yeah. He maybe could have helped her more if he'd chosen something else, a more secular job. Yeah. And then we cut to Chris, mm. who isn't religious, yeah. who has chose a more secular job as an actress, quite lefty, mm -hmm. you know. She's hosting a real swanky party yeah. for the Georgetown elite that leads and the yeah. film folk. So it's quite an interesting contrast between Chris, who can afford all this um, medical, these doctors, mm -hmm. all of this, constantly getting tested. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll get this test, this test, this test, this test, which in America would have cost her a lot of money mm -hmm. compared to Father Karras, whose mother needed that medical help, who needed all of that, but can't afford it. Yeah. And ultimately, the the costly medicine, the costly doctors, all of that, isn't what helps Reagan. Yeah. It's religion that helps Reagan. Mm -hmm. So I think what Blatty is saying, in the contrast between these two families, is that, you know, some of what Chris has mm. could be given to... You know, Father yeah. Karras and his mother, mm -hmm. and some of what Father Karras has by the end, because I know he's conflicted, yeah. but what he has could go over to Chris. Yeah, I mean, I was literally going to say, you know, the interesting question here is, what is there to make of the parallels between uh, the single mother and child in two different areas of the film? Well, obviously he's not a child, but, you know, with Father Karras and his mother, and then Reagan and her mother... You know, we see one side, we have Father Karras, whose mother is dying and he can't really do anything about it. Mm. And then we have Reagan and Chris, where her daughter is, is going to die if something's not done about it. Yeah. But she can get all that done. You know, it's a very, very interesting contrast, which I've, I've never really thought about until about five minutes ago when you mentioned it. So, uh <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that, that is really interesting. I feel like it was deliberate that these two scenes yeah, yeah. were back to yeah. back. You know, yeah. Chris, she's had her hair done. She's got a beautiful, like, is it almost oh my God. lavender dress. Like a Campus dress. Blue. Um, so chic. Serving, so chic. Um, yeah, she's she's slaying. She's, oh my God. Yeah, it's full of glitter. She is. And that that, that wig. Oh, if it, even, even, if it even is a wig. I don't know. Really I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It, it's getting a little, giving a little bit of Margaret Thatcher, but <laughs> before before Thatcher ruined it. Um, she yeah. asks. So at the party is camp priest Father Dyer. Yeah, played by an actual priest, Reverend okay. William O'Malley. Yeah, camp though. Isn't he? Very he's camp. camp. He's oh my god. He's like oh, I could have been on Broadway. Oh. My idea of heaven is a big white nightclub with me as a headliner <laughs> and they all love me. <laughs> um, he tells Chris about Father Karras because Chris had seen Father Karras as she was walking earlier in the film. And do you think that Chris 
fancied a little bit of Father Karras. I think she did, but I'm not going to lie. So. I think Father Dyer also fancied a little bit I of think Karras. So. <laughs> yeah. The, and the film definitely hints towards it. Um, especially a little scene later on after his mum died. And and the final scene together as well. I, I do feel like... Because it's never expressed what their sexuality is, either of them. But, you know, they're both priests, so immediately you've got to assume that they're straight. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's something there. I d- it's a difficult one, because obviously... They're very good friends. all the religious themes... <laughs> Um, hey, I, I certainly on. don't think they were hang written on. gay. You know what the demon says later on to him. I do understand. Yeah, I do understand that. Yeah, you know, I'm I, I'm not forcing the narrative. It's it's all there. Um, yeah. So Father Dyer's hosting a piano sing along, and uh, Reagan appears and ruins his big performance by urinating on the carpet. This, to me, was the most uncomfortable scene. Yeah. It is really stunning. This, this to me, because a lot of the horror within the film is of supernatural nature. Yeah. This to me was the creepiest. Mm-hmm. It's this and the hospital scenes. Yeah. That make me feel uncomfortable. Mm. When I first watched this, this was the one that stuck with me the most. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know it, it's. It's not supernatural. It's, no. it, it, could, it could happen, you know. And, and, mm-hmm. and it was really creepy. Like, really, really yeah. creepy. Um, after Chris puts Reagan to bed, her bed shakes violently and Chris witnesses it. Dyer consoles Karis. He comforts his good friend. Uh, and Karis expresses guilt and not having been there with his mother when she died. Karis dreams of his mother, uh, a St. Joseph medallion and... Briefly, a demonic face. The same one that we saw flash with Reagan earlier on. Yeah, Pazuzu. Yeah, really, really disturbing dream sequence. You know, dream sequences can go one of two ways, but this is really disturbing. Uh, And then it transitions to Reagan becoming violent during more medical tests. Um, Tests that fail to find anything physically wrong with her. This includes the disturbing... um, Arteriogram. Arteriogram. There yes. we go. Um, well done. Yeah, which I always... I, I genuinely struggle to watch this scene. Ugh, it's just horrible. Yeah. So I can understand why this, this is probably the scene where people fainted. Because people hate needles and hate yeah. blood. Um, and it, it um, I'm assuming it wasn't real. I really hope it wasn't real. Mm. But it looks very real. Yeah. Yeah, it was a horror. Yeah, blech. Something really interesting in this scene as well um, is the bearded man who assists the doctor is Paul Bateson. He was an x-ray technician at NYU Medical Center where the scene was shot and managed to get that small part. In 1979, he was convicted of the murder of a film critic and was censored, no, it it certainly wasn't censored, sentenced to 20 years in prison. However, he bragged about uh, and was a suspect in the murders of six men whom he said he picked up in gay bars, had sex with them and then murdered and dismembered their bodies and put them in plastic bags for fun in 1977 and 1978. They were known as the bag murders, although investigators believed his story. He was never officially charged and those murders have technically never been solved. Bateson uh, was released from prison in 2004 the whole story revolving the bag murders were later fictionalized in Friedkin's Cruising. In 
fucking sane that this man admitted to murdering a bunch of gay people and was not charged. Yeah. Insane. It really is. And that really says what we need to know about American law. Yeah. Released from prison. He should have had a life sentence. And there were people doing life sentences for uh, weed possession. Yeah. Shit like that. Yeah. That man confessed to murdering those people and they refused to believe it. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Also adds to the Exodus curse um, that they had a fucking murderer on set. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Well, I suppose it would have came out and he would have real... Freakin would have realised that he was in this film. Mm. And then did Cruising. Yeah, what do you think to Cruising um, being made off of someone that freaking hired uh, murdering people it's weird it doesn't take away from it being a good film i mean cruising's great no no it's 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 interesting it's it's interesting yeah i mean so many horror films are based on real serial killers this is very close to william friedkin though to a certain degree but really what one day on set yeah i suppose the most you know it's not like they were they were pals yeah pals uh, during a house call, a, a demonically uh, possessed Reagan uh, exhibits abnormal strength. She is thrown back and forth on her bed. Her eyes turn completely white. She has this massive lump in her throat and she tells the doctors to fuck her as they sedate her. Linda Blair said in a recent interview that uh, her spine was fractured in that scene. And uh, the contraption that was supposed to lift her up and down broke loose and her spine was permanently injured. What's the, these really unnecessary. Really unnecessary. I, her telling the doctors to fuck her is even more disturbing than her eyes turning white. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And is this the bit where the sow is mine? Maybe. Or did the demon saying the sow is mine? Maybe. What is a sow? I wrote it down. Sal? Sow. S O W. Okay. S O W. You sure they didn't say Sal? No, Sal. Sal. Um, oh, it might have been actually. <laughs> Sal. Uh, yeah. Oh, Sal is an adult female pig. Oh my god. Okay. Well, yeah, there we go. How rude. One night, Chris finds the house empty except for a sleeping Reagan. We get a brief glimpse of the demon face in the background. She's walking through the house. Really fantastic jump scare. Because mm-hmm. there's no sound. It yeah. just flashes there. And it really... The first time I watched it, it really made me jump. Uh, Dennings is... The Exorcist walked so a thousand YouTube videos could run. Dennings is found dead at the foot of an outdoor staircase beneath Reagan's window. After Chris is told about this, Reagan walks down the stairs like a spider and bleeds from her mouth. Uh, played by contortionist Anne Miles in this scene. Oh, okay. He was hired to perform this scene in but particular. Was Linda Blair even in this film? Miss <laughs> um, Miles was able to perform the scene by using uh, by the use of a harness and flying wires hung above the staircase used on the set. She would advise Freakin um, when she was just barely touching the stairs with her hands and feet. And then she maintained that light touch as she was moved down the staircase by the harness and wires. Freakin deleted the scene before the film's December release. He felt it was too much of an effect because it appeared so early on in the film. 
He later admitted that another reason for omitting the scene was that there was no way to hide the wires from view at the time. But 30 years later, Friedkin changed his mind and added the scene back in for the extended version uh, with the wires digitally removed. Thankfully, we've seen the full deleted scene and Reagan has like a snake's tongue after and chases after... Um, yeah. Chases after, what's her name? The, the nanny. Yeah. Um, I'm glad they cut that bit out at the end. That just looks silly. The imagery of the spider world of the spider walk, which I remember being a massive deal surrounding the extended version. Fucking terrifying. It really is. It's random. You know, not sure how necessary it is. We only know she's possessed. But it's fucking scary. It's a great image. Really well done. Completely doesn't fit in the film at that no. point. He was right to take it out. Um, and I suppose, if, if not there, where would you put it? Yeah. Because it is fan a fantastic image. Yeah. It doesn't work there. I 100% I agree that it does not work no. there. But imitated thousands of times after of no one understanding Absolutely. why it looks so scary. Yeah. Yeah. Psychiatrist speaks to Reagan about Captain Howdy while she sits in a chair with her hand in a position like someone's middle-aged aunt asking if someone's gay. Is he a bit, you know... The psychiatrist talks to the demon inside of Regan and she squeezes his balls, forcing him to fall to the floor in a shot that kind of looks like the detective's death scene in Psycho. Yeah, yeah it does actually. Yeah. When he's going yeah. down the stairs. Like, it yeah. looks exactly like that. That's um, true. Again, this is really fucking disturbing. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the moment where shit starts yeah. to hit the fan we've yeah. got a little this is this is why the spider walk doesn't doesn't work where it is yeah because this is the We're beginning to the real yeah. beginnings of her being tied to the bed fully possessed mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it is yeah it, it's a, a shocking scene uh, the homicide detective william kinderman questions karis confiding that Den denning's body was found with its head turned backwards. What's the what's your opinion on the Dennings character? Um, because in the book, he was uh, molesting Reagan. So I the fact that he was see. in her bedroom when he was murdered, kind of hints towards that being a case in this film as well. Oh, I the see. The fact that he was there when he was murdered and pushed out the window. That wasn't what I was getting, if I'm no. being honest. Well, anyone who hasn't read the book... I mean, I haven't read it myself. No. It's just in the trivia. I anyone was... who hasn't read the book would not yeah, think that. I didn't... I, I, that's not what I thought. I just thought he was um, fodder to, to show. Mm. You know, in horror films, you have to kind of establish how far it's willing to go. Yeah. You know... Um, is this demon capable of murder? Well, you kind of have to establish that. Mm. Um, so that's that's what I assumed it was for. Um, and also there was the suggestion that uh, Burke and Chris maybe would have a relationship Yeah. as well. Um, so maybe it's the idea of... Because it's Reagan that asked that, yeah. those questions. Um, so I thought it was just, just a way of sort of getting rid of a character that wasn't necessarily the most important. No, I mean, I think it's also interesting that he was accusing um, housekeeper Carl of being a Nazi because he's German. And 
you know, he's not exactly shown as the nicest character. No, he's a, um, he's a, he's a knobhead. You know, yeah, um, he's always obnoxious and drunk and whatnot. Drunk, yeah. So, yeah, I just I find it interesting that the, the wrongdoer of the film was the first one to be murdered. Yeah. Yeah, well, the only one, really. Well, yeah. Kind of. Um, Reagan's condition worsens and her, and her body becomes covered with sores. A doctor mentions exorcism as a remote option, suggesting a possible psychological benefit. Chris finds a crucifix hidden under Reagan's pillow, but no one put it there. And Kinderman visits Chris, explaining that the only plausible explanation for Dennings' death is that he was pushed from Reagan's window. Uh, supposedly, his head was twisted around as well before he was pushed. Okay. Yeah. 180 degrees. Yeah. Um... Which makes the next scene all the more effective. In a bizarre series of events, as Kinderman leaves uh, after asking for Chris's autograph, because, you know, why wouldn't you? He saw Angel six times. He did. Um, the possessed Reagan stabs at her genitals with a crucifix while shouting, let Jesus fuck you. She then, and I shit you not, forces Chris's head onto her crotch, shouting, lick me. She then slaps her mother across the room... Uh, and turns her head backwards before saying, Do you know what she did, your canting daughter? In Dennings' voice. Yeah. For me, one of the most disturbing sequences in horror cinema history. For me, one of the campest. Campest? <laughs> forcing her mother to lick her out? <laughs> but this is the scene that's been parodied oh, of to death. Of this is the scene that's been parodied. You know, I'd seen all the parodies before I watched it. And th this is the scene where we really differ. Yeah. Yes, it's disturbing. I can give you a list of reasons why it's disturbing. Yeah. But because of how I first watched the film, because of all the sort of, um, sort of parodies around this scene for decades, you know, because, you know, it's... I'm not particularly uh, scared of horror films and stuff like that because I prize camp value over a lot of other things in, in film. Yeah. Not all the time. I sort of look at it as a thrillingly camp scene. Mm. You, having come to the film differently to me, see it for its intended purposes. Yeah, I mean, just the image of her masturbating the crucifix and... Her face is slightly changed by this point, but you can still see it's a child. You can still see it's Linda Blair. It just that's just fucking horrific. And it's not, it's not subtle about it either. We see her masturbating with a crucifix. It's not. They don't really hide it. No, no. Um, and the blood splattering out of it. It's a really horrific image. Um, it's... and I think the fact that she takes on Dennings' voice and twists her head around the way she twists his head around before she murdered him. That's just like that's so creepy. Yeah, and I sit here be because of the way I've seen this yeah. film is why, to me, it's camp. Mm -hmm. One of the, the reasons why it's not camp <laughs> is because it's one of those things that has to be um, taken very seriously. Yeah. You, you have to give it 100% or it's going to yeah. come off as campy. So an actress like Ellen Burstyn mm. is able to do that. Yes, she is fantastic in this scene. Yeah. Um, also, again, William Friedkin being a dick, um, 
the harness on her when Reagan slaps her across the room, the harness on her back, she told him it was uncomfortable. Mm. She said, you know, this is this is too much, you've got to slow it down. So as soon as she went to film the scene again, he gave the special effects guy a look, the one who was pulling her on this uh on this harness, and he yanked it even harder to the point that you can see in the film her looking at her back when she falls to the ground and did serious damage. Mm. Why? Ellen Burson, before this scene, I don't know what order you shot the film in, but before this point, she has showcased so many fucking times that she is a phenomenal actress who is fully capable of giving an Oscar-worthy performance. Why the fuck have you got to injure her to get more of a reaction? I'm sure she could have gave a great reaction just being pulled lightly on the harness. I don't think her Oscar nomination came purely because she fell really convincingly. Mm. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's yeah. it's this thing where you actors act it's in the fucking yeah. name and i think the documentary says a lot about the time a the documentary was released and b when this was filmed when the fact that you know ellen burstyn was saying about how it wasn't okay mm. what happened to her but she was still just laughing it off because i mean why would she think there's anything wrong with that? that's the way fucking hollywood was at that point exactly uh the possessed reagan is now confined to her bedroom and strapped to her bed probably for the best Chris seeks out Karis and asks how to get an exorcism. He tells her it doesn't happen anymore. She tells him that Reagan is possessed and he agrees to visit her. Again, her performance in this scene as well. Oh my God. You genuinely feel for her. She genuinely acts completely hopeless. Yeah. And she's gone from living this glamorous lifestyle, you know, where she's always looking amazing. She's, she could afford all the doctors in the world and everything. To the point where she has no hope and she has to turn to religion. She has to turn to this exorcism. And, you know, she's wearing sunglasses to cover up bruises on her eyes. She she looks run down and really sells it. Yeah, she's selling the outfit as well. Oh, yeah. The sunglasses. Still slaying. That headscarf. This is her meant to be dressing down, but it's she's still camp. slaying. Still giving camp. <laughs> um, yeah. Over two meetings, the possessed Reagan claims to be the devil himself, tells Karis that his mother is in the room with them, Projectile vomits into Karras's face, speaks in tongues, and reacts violently when tap water is sprinkled on her, which he claimed was holy water, a point against genuine possession. Karras asks Chris if there's any way Reagan could have known about his mother, who had died recently, and she tells him there's no way at all because she never told her. Um, this is when we first see the makeup on Reagan, yeah. and this image, again... It's so fucking scary. Like, the makeup effects in this film. And even the practical effects uh, with the dummy that twists its head around in the last scene. So fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. And this this is the first time we hear the Mercedes yes. and Cambridge yeah. voice as well. So we're in full-on possession mode now. Yeah. Um, and we've it's been building and building. And it kind of crescendoed with the um, crucifix head spinning scene yeah um but as an audience we're like oh my god what now mm -hmm. what now that was before she fucking fully turned yeah demon yeah what now what's coming next and i i like the way that it, it doesn't stick with you know regan for the la for the rest of the film mm -hmm. it, it goes back and forth and you're kind of like well what what the fuck is gonna happen now you know we've still got yeah. half an hour left of the film what the yeah. fuck's gonna happen uh, the scene where she projectile vomits at Father Karras only required one take. The vomit was intended to hit Jason Miller in the chest, but the plastic tube in misfired, hitting him in the face. So 
that his reaction of shock and disgust whilst wiping away the vomit is genuine. And Miller admitted in an interview that he was very angered by the mistake. I mean, yeah, it's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Was it actually pea soup? Pea soup. Or is that it's pea actually soup. It pea was soup. originally another brand of soup. Uh, I can't remember the brand. Um, but it didn't look real enough, so he went with uh, pea soup. And I bet brand. it was cold as well. Yeah. Mm. It's a disgusting image to look at. The demon says it will remain in Reagan Why until she's peas? dead. What the fuck is pea soup? Who would just have peas <laughs> in soup? <laughs> the demon says it will remain in Reagan until she's dead. I mean, yeah, isn't it just mushy peas? Well, yeah, but it was like mush, like blended pea. Like there must be something else to it, mm-hmm. like pea and mint, or like pea and. Um, oh no! Ew. Desperate. Now Chris... it sounds like I'm talking about urine. Desperate, Chris confides uh, that the possessed Reagan killed Dennings. At night, Reagan's nanny called Karis to the house, calls Karis to the house, and they witnessed the words "Help me" materializing on Reagan's skin. Yeah. In that's that was like oh, yeah. Like in a freezing cold bedroom, uh, the refrigerated bedroom set was cooled with four air conditioners, and temperatures would plunge below thirty degrees. It was so cold that perspiration would freeze on some of the cast and crew. On one occasion, the air was saturated with moisture, resulting in a thin layer of snow falling on the set before the crew arrived for filming. Like, there's, there's got to be laws about against that, surely. Why? Even in, well... Are working in those temperatures. There's always that thing that you can work in an office or work in an environment that's too hot, but when it gets too cold, something has to be done. So I don't. I think in 1973, I don't think those regulations. Well, were there. yeah. People talk about the good old days, but um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think there was a minimum it's, wage. You know, it's either. made for one of the greatest films ever made. I mean, you can't complain at that, but it still would have been the greatest film ever made if you had suspended a bit of disbelief, suspended uh, a bit of belief with a cold room and uh, you yeah, know. and the environment as well. Yeah. Just keeping it on all night. Yeah. Although, how great would the scene have been with the snow still intact? I know, yeah. Could you imagine? I think that would have been quite ethereal. Um, Karis concludes that an exorcism is warranted now. Uh, despite not fully believing it, he, he goes for it. And his superior grants permission on the condition that an experienced priest leads the ritual whilst Karis assists. Merrin, having performed an exorcism before, is summoned if you'd like to see that exorcism, watch The Exorcist The Beginning or The Exorcist Dominion. Um, <laughs> oh, is that what that's based on? Yeah. Oh, I see. Two films filmed at the same time. Um, about yeah. That, that one incident. Marin says, um, I hear you're in a crisis. I'm on my way. He does. He does. He goes full super nanny in the back of the taxi, doesn't he? In an iconic scene, he arrives at the house, smoke around, the lighting is just the lamp above him, the street lamp, uh, fucking looks incredible it's on all the posters yeah you know. seeing that poster when i was younger i suppose i was used to seeing freddy krueger and jason and, yeah. and whatnot i thought and not really understand it and I, I mean young i mean young um i suppose i thought the exorcist was the bad guy yeah <laughs> because it's quite i mean it kind of looks like he's gonna enter this house uh-huh. and start killing people because <laughs> yeah. that, that's the kind of horror film i would i had known yeah. by that point and I, uh, yeah, we've seen the iconic scene when we're going back. We have. Um, yeah. He arrives at the house warning Karis that the demon uses a psychological attack. As the priests, as we finally get to the exorcism <clears> scene, <throat> like an hour and 45 minutes into the film or something like that, 
Um, the priests read from the Roman ritual. The demon starts to curse them, including stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. She's Scottish. Why, am focuses... I Liam... Why did you sound like Liam Neeson I, I there? Oh focuses... no, Liam Neeson's Irish. Irish. That was a bit Irish, a bit of Scottish. It focuses on Karis. She sounds a bit Irish. I she... think she sounds a bit Irish. No, you sound a bit Irish. It focuses on Karis. Well, Karras, the library is well and truly open. Verbally attacking his loss of faith and guilt over the circumstances of his mother's death. We get the famous, your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis, you fa faithless swine. Um... And then we get shoved up your ass, you F slur. Not the bunch <laughs> of stick slur. And then it's fuck him, fuck him, Karis. <laughs> um, I mean, he probably wanted to. We all know he's secretly gay. Um, Reagan straps undo, and she begins to levitate. And we get the famous The Power of Christ Compels You from the priests as Merrin throws holy water at her. And cuts appear on her legs and she is lowered back down to the bed. A lot of people throw chilling around when describing certain things in horror films. To me, this is the scene that defines what a chilling moment in a horror film looks like. Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, her eyes are white again. It's just a great effect as well. It's a great image. It's almost um, like a painting. Mm her there and I, i'm sure you know um someone's done like a painting of it because it's a very small enclosed place so everything's sort of come together yeah. in the film for this moment in this enclosed room this tiny room and then we get this shot very sort of um close to the three characters yeah. um yeah and i thought it was very sort of um what is that word for like when it looks like a painting. Oh, picturesque. Yeah, okay, we'll give it that. Yeah. <laughs> the priest rests momentarily as Merrin, uh, shaken, takes uh, nitroglycerin. Karis enters the bedroom where the demon appears as his mother. Showing weakness, Karis exclaims that the demon is not his mother, which causes Merrin to excuse him and continue the exorcism by himself. Really weird imagery, um, seeing his mum on Reagan's bed. Mm. The way it's lit and everything, it, it looks great. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a very striking image. Karis assures Chris that Reagan will not die and re-enters the room, finding Merrin dead. So, he's the title character, he mm. shows up an hour and 45 minutes into the film and fucking dies after like 10 minutes. He does, he does. Um... It was it was alluded to earlier in the film, wasn't it, that he mm. uh, had he was taking some sort of medication. Um, assuming the idea is that he's had some sort of heart attack. Yeah, it's all just been a bit too much for him. Karis beats the possessed Reagan and demands that the demon takes him instead. The demon rips a medallion of Saint Joseph from Karis's neck and begins to possess him, freeing Reagan. The sound of the demon leaving Reagan's body is actually the sound of pigs being herded for slaughter. This alludes to a story in the New Testament where Jesus cast out several demons, collectively called Legion, from a man and transfers them into the bodies of pigs. The pigs are then drowned, similar to Father Caris, dying after accepting the demon. Oh. So, yeah. Fucking there we are. Lots of shit going on in the Bible. Yeah, but he, you know, he makes the ultimate sacrifice yeah. to save Regan. Yeah. He couldn't save his mother, mm -hmm. but he can save Regan. Yeah. He hurls himself out of the window, tumbling down the stairs outside. 
Chris and Kinderman enter the room and Chris embraces the healed Reagan and Kinderman surveys the violence and confusion. Outside, uh, Karis's lover father Dyer administers the last Shut rites up. as he dies. Uh, another case of in what what we should have called this whole episode, William Friedkin being a dick, um, a special segment that we've had repeated occurrences of. Um, he went to some extraordinary lengths to get realistic reactions from the cast. He fired off guns behind the actors to get the required startled effect. And when Father Dyer is attempting to administer last rites to Father Karras, Friedkin was not satisfied after several takes. He was not satisfied with the actual priest who was not an actor, not given a realistic performance. He took William O'Malley aside and asked, do you trust me? O'Malley said yes, just in time to get slapped across the face. Friedkin immediately said action and the result is in the film. Um, you can see his hand shaking. Like, during the scene, and it's not a performance. Fuck That's actual. Um, yeah. This... He assaulted a cast member. Yeah. There's no way around that. He assaulted a cast member. He did. And the bullshit part is that these aren't the parts that we remember from the no. film. No. They, they really aren't. You know, there are moments in the film... But I don't think, oh, remember that bit at the end where his hand was shaking? What a great performance by that guy who was barely in the film. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, didn't Ellen Burstyn do a wonderful falling on her ass? Yes. You know, they're not the parts that we remember. They're not the parts that add to the film. You know, it's the mm. special effects. It's the, you know, performances of sadness and grief. And, yeah. You know, just haven't had enough, you mm. know. It's those parts yeah. of the films that we remember. So why is he... I suppose you'd call it micromanaging every it single is. second of the and film. Firing off guns as well to get people on the internet performances. Yeah. They're fucking actors. It's their jobs. It's they their can job. do this. If you don't think that they are capable yeah. of why giving the performance them? that you need, don't hire them. Yeah. It's as simple as that. McNeil's prepared to leave and Father Dyer says goodbye. Uh, despite having no memory of her ordeal, Reagan is moved by the sight of Dyer's clerical collar to kiss him on the cheek. There we go. <laughs> and that sums up the film entirely. As the McNeils leave, Chris gives Dyer the medallion found in Reagan's room. But Dyer places it back in her hand and suggests that she keep it. Because she's a godless woman, she has now embraced religion. <laughs> After she and Reagan drive away, Dyer pauses at the top of the stone steps before walking away and coming across Kinderman, who narrowly missed Chris and Reagan's departure. Kinderman and Dyer begin to develop a friendship over films. They do. Um, funny that Kinderman seemingly is fine with the explanation. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a demon that killed Burke. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. Um, do you want to go watch, you know... The way we were, down there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I hear it's a, angels playing. I'm yeah. seeing it for the seventh time. It's a really interesting uh, ending. Considering it's a horror film and, you know, everything's meant to lead up to a sequel. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing having an happy ending. Um, one week after the film's released, a great success, the studio contacted, uh, contacted, contacted William Freakin to propose a sequel. He simply said, how no and hung up the phone. And here we are in 2022 with four sequels, a TV series, Dolls of Reagan, Funko Pops, 
it's a pop culture phenomenon and uh, new sequels are currently being made by the team who made the Halloween requels. With Ellen Burstyn. With Ellen Burstyn. Uh, she's in her 80s now. Yeah. Still killing well, it. Last year she delivered a phenomenal performance in uh, Pieces of Woman. Yeah. You know, she's still yeah, going. Absolutely. She's still got it. Uh, I, hands down, as amazing, and you haven't seen it, as amazing as she is in The Exorcist, Requiem for a Dream, mm. one of my favourite performances of all time. She's absolutely phenomenal in that film. Mm. We need to watch that yeah. ASAP. Um, but yeah, that's that's The Exorcist. And that's The Exorcist. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, putting the religious stuff aside, it's a flawless film. From start to finish, uh, every frame is perfect, every performance is perfect. It's just phenomenal. It's one of those films that I love on the podcast. It's a film that we've watched many times, well established, and it's nice to to sit there and we make our notes and we look at it and we, you know, we analyse it. And at the end, we're like, wow, that was fantastically made. I always knew that, but we see it on a different level. Yeah. We see the filmmaking. We can, you know, when we're not... I, I can only speak for myself, but I'm not a complete expert on filmmaking. No. I've seen a fair amount of films. Yeah. You know, I like to think I know what I'm talking about. So I can see it from that perspective, which gives mm -hmm. it a whole new meaning yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, and a new appreciation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get to the awards. Yeah. Biggest queen. Of course, it is none other than Chris McNeil. It certainly is. Absolutely. She slays throughout. She does. Um, if if yeah, explained why. yeah, for more <laughs> of us standing, um, Ellen Burstyn, just rewind the episode back to the start. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Biggest gasp for me is the crucifix masturbation. Yeah, for me it was the uh, the Regan wetting herself. Scene. Yeah, that that one really got me. Uh, best dialogue I have. Do you know what she did? Your canting daughter. I went for the obvious. Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Paris. <laughs> It was. Do you think? I think this might be a time to uh, discuss this. Do you think that that shocking dialogue isn't as effective now? Yes. Uh, children swearing in films has been shocking for many years. Mm. Um, the most recent one that caused outrage and controversy was Kick Ass when Chloe Grace Moretz says, Okay, you cunts. Yeah, that was the big sh last one I remember being shocking. Since that point on, those are the two staples: that and this, um, Kickass and The Exorcist, with children swearing being a massive deal. Since Kickass, though, it's not a shock anymore. Like it's, um, you know, the amount of films we get now with children swearing where no one bats an eyelid. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the top, when I first watched this, yeah, this was shocking. I was like, oh my god. Um, but again, Your Mother Sucks Cox and Hal had been parodied to death before that, so I'd already... It has. You know. And also, from a very modern perspective, it's kind of slut-shaming, isn't it? It is, yeah. If someone says Your Mother Sucks Cox and Hal, they'd be like, yes, girl, you get yours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great time. Jealous. Beyond. Great time beyond the grave. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she wasn't the best place, Diane. <laughs> Did her a favour. But, you know, and it's... it's, it's kind of loses its effect over time um 
something like the the f slur as well yeah. um i'm sure that was very shocking um and i I'm, I'm not really sure if that was shocking because the kid was being saying a swear word or the homophobia implied i'm not i'm not sure or the idea that she would insinuate the two priests were homosexual yeah i'm not because obviously that f slur was used a lot back then yeah so maybe that wasn't the homophobia wasn't the shocking part. Maybe it was the insinuation that the two priests were shagging <laughs> was the shocking part. But uh, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and finally, that's camp. I have Chris McNeil's party outfit and wig. Yeah, I I said for me, uh, time. You know, from first watch to now, from the it was made and now. You know, we're looking at fifty years almost. Uh, rewatches and the numerous parodies have made pretty much the whole film quite camp for mm-hmm. me. But Chris McNeil and her, her fashions, they, yeah. they give pure camp queen energy. Headscarves and sunglasses, yeah. anyone? <laughs> the best, the best grieving outfit you'll ever see. Ratings, I give it 10 cunting daughters out of 10. <laughs> I give it 10 cocksucking grannies out of 10. <laughs> Uh, of course, Masterpiece, Trash to Beach, Trash of Basic, of course it is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, it and really it's is. available on DVD, Blu-ray and video on demand. And if you enjoy this, I recommend checking out The Exorcist Free. Oh, good choice. Uh, if you enjoyed You can this... skip two, it's fine. You can skip two, it's a no. direct sequel. I, uh, I went a little more basic. If you enjoyed this, you will enjoy The Omen. It's, yes, you yeah, know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. A Never a few, cursed film. A lot of supernatural films that came out after. Yeah. But I think The Omen's probably the best of the bunch. Obviously, the Julia Stiles one, you mean. Oh, yeah. And the and one released Mia Farrow. At the 6th of June, 2006. <laughs> yes. Next week, well, no, before we get to that, I've got to uh, tell you to tell us if you like the film. What am I doing? I do this every week. Uh, we are on social media, Horacult Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horacult Trash on Twitter. I'm Delek Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruz92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And give us a rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, like and follow on everything else, a rating on Spotify, buy our merch on redbubble.com if you would so kindly do so and wear our faces on random objects. Next week. We have a double episode week, the first of two double episode weeks Ooh. this month, starting with Killer Clown from Outer Space on the Tuesday. Yes. Now that is a Halloween film. It is. It is definitely a Halloween film. And on Friday, we'll be giving you our highlights from this year's BFI London Film Festival. Yeah. More, maybe more uh, prestigious. Maybe. Than uh, maybe. Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yes. Uh, But we'll be back same time, same place next week. Bye.